Well, today our year-long study of the New Testament book of Acts is going to focus on something that none of us enjoy, but none of us can avoid. Its occurrence in life is certain, but the outcome doesn't have to be certain. We have something to say about the outcome. The story that introduces our topic is found in Acts chapter 15, and the whole story is contained in just four verses, verses 36 through 40. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Sounds like a crisscross song, doesn't it? But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Today we're going to talk about when we can't agree. Now I know that's not a relevant topic for any of you. But you be patient, all right? Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, our desire is simple. We want to hear from you through your life-changing word. Toward that end, I pray that your spirit would anoint me to teach faithfully and prophetically. And I pray that your spirit would anoint every one of us so that we can hear you clearly, see how your truth impacts us, and apply that truth so that we might be transformed. Father, as always, we pray these things for the honor of Jesus in his community and in this broken community. And we'll give you thanks in advance because you're a good, good father, and we know you're here to bless your people today. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. I've said this before. You know the next part. I'm about to say it again. God's word is an honest read. And by that I mean God makes no effort to cover up the struggles or the failures of his people. Quite the contrary, at times it appears that God goes out of his way to make the failings of his people a matter of public record. And Acts 15 is a case in point. The events recorded in this chapter remind us that even though we follow the same Jesus, even though we read the same Bible, even though we pursue the same mission, even though we seek direction from the same Holy Spirit, Jesus' followers are not immune to conflict. We can... We often do, and in the future we will disagree for a whole host of reasons. Some of those reasons are regrettable, but as you'll see today, sometimes the reasons for our disagreement are honorable and holy. 
And today's story and its eventual outcome remind us of something else. While disagreements may lead us to pursue different paths, they should never lead us to pursue different purposes. Believers can negotiate different paths towards following God's mission, but we can never vary when it comes to our purpose. That's a God-given mandate. Now, Satan knows a great deal about today's topic. He knows an awful lot about disagreement and what the text refers to as sharp conflict. And he should know a great deal about conflict because he was the first to embrace it and he's the foremost promoter of it in the universe. Satan is always sowing the seeds of division inside the church and in the culture at large. But inside the church, he knows that whenever believers fail to handle division or conflict properly, we pay a very, very stiff penalty. It comes in the form of damaged relationships, decreased spiritual power, damaged witness and credibility, and diminished joy. That's why when believers disagree, Satan offers weapons to both sides. He speaks to both participants. He's the foremost arms dealer in the universe. And he's always looking for willing customers. When disagreements arise, he wants to get us in the buying mood for what he's peddling. So, like many advertisers that we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, he appeals to things like our insecurity. He appeals to our pride. He appeals to our fears. He appeals to our jealousies. And then once he's got us incited, he offers us specials on anger, resentment, bitterness, and an ample supply of what we now call hater aid <laughs> and snarky comments. And you can sample Satan's wares anytime you want to. They're all cataloged in social media. Now, in contrast to Satan, when believers disagree, God offers wisdom to both sides, and he points us toward godly resolution. And godly resolution doesn't demand total agreement. And godly resolution doesn't create a winner and a loser. It's a win-win proposition. So Satan offers an inferior product line when we can't agree, and God offers a superior product line. But you and I know we don't always take the best offer on the table. We don't always take what God has made available to us. Sometimes we opt for inferior goods. And on this occasion, despite their admirable track record and all of their successes, that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did. They didn't do so well in this chapter, and it's a reminder that even spirit-filled apostles can have bad moments. Okay. All of us have bad moments. Paul had some bad moments. Barnabas had some bad moments. 
Now, let's look at the occasion of the conflict. It's something every pastor experiences. It was a church staff issue. Barnabas' cousin Mark had accompanied him and Paul on their very first missionary journey as they shared the gospel of Christ with Gentile people. But for reasons that we aren't told, Mark had returned home early. He had jumped ship. He bailed on them. And as a result, he didn't encounter the intense persecution they did a little later on. Now again, God doesn't tell us why he bailed. Perhaps he discovered what anybody in ministry discovers. Ministry is glamorous when you think about it. But when it comes time to do it, it's a lot of grind, it's a lot of grit, and it takes a lot of grace. Or perhaps Mark couldn't accept the fact that his uncle Barnabas was being replaced as the lead personality on the team by Paul. You remember when they first hooked up, it was Barnabas and Paul the newcomer. But in Acts, it quickly becomes Paul and Barnabas. And, and sometimes, if you feel a family member is being slighted, you might own that and feel it more intensely than they do. I've seen people bear somebody else's offense like it was their own and carry it with them for a long, long time. So maybe that's what led to Mark jumping ship. Or perhaps he experienced something else. Whenever you get into ministry, you'll immediately come face to face with your own junk, with your own insecurities, your own sins, your own inappropriate motivations, and your own fears. But again, God doesn't tell us why Mark bailed, because there are things we don't need to know. But whatever the reason, in light of Mark's unfortunate decision, Paul said, he's not going with me. I need people I can count on. Now, all indications are Mark wanted to go. And certainly, Barnabas felt he should go. But Paul drew that proverbial line in the sand and said, no way, Jose, the dude is not going with me. You want to take him on a missionary journey? You go take your own missionary journey. I can't trust him. I don't have confidence in him. I think he'll jump ship again. And Mark's decision that led to this and Paul's subsequent refusal to include him reminds us that those who make a habit of living in the moment guarantee themselves future moments of regret. Have you noticed a lot of people live in the moment? They make big decisions based on what they're feeling right now. And they don't think, where might this decision lead me in a week, in a month, in six months, in a year? They don't consider the long-range potential effects of their choices. They just respond to their immediate fear or their immediate anger or their immediate fatigue. When I'm talking to folks who are facing major decisions, I always remind them, don't make a big decision when you're tired, when you're frustrated, when you're angry, because it's probably got to be an in-the-moment bad decision. See, if you make decisions in the moment just to get out of an awkward situation as quickly as possible, 
you may erect serious barriers to the future that God intends for you and the future you desire for yourself. Now, I want to say at this point, we're prone to think that unresolved conflict is always unresolved because people have evil or inappropriate motives. But this story tells us otherwise. It reminds us that disagreement may flow out of passion for God's kingdom if that passion is expressed through different gifts and strengths. Now let me unpack that. Paul was passionate about the spread of God's kingdom to the nations. In fact, Jesus had called him to lead the charge. He was the point man. And for him, that mission took precedence over anything and everything else, including his own comfort and his own safety. And Paul's defining strengths were his uncompromised singular focus. Remember, Paul said, this one thing I do. He didn't say, these ten things I dabble in. This one thing I do. Singular focus. Another strength was his unfailing determination, and another was his unwavering courage in the face of adversity. Now Barnabas, he was just as passionate about the mission as Paul was because he had faced the same adversities. He had made the same sacrifices, but his strengths were different than Paul's. His strength was his uncompromised focus on grace and his unfailing determination to help believers who were struggling a bit and to encourage them to get back on their feet and become everything God intended for them. You see, his name literally meant son of encouragement. And wherever you read about Barnabas in Acts, and you read about him frequently, he's always encouraging either the church as a whole or struggling individuals. In fact, you might recall Paul's ministry would have had much greater difficulty getting off the ground if it hadn't been for Barnabas. Because when the rest of the church said, that dude used to persecute us, we don't trust him, it was Barnabas who said, no, he's the real deal, you can trust him. So Barnabas was always encouraging. So I would put it this way, Paul's strength was breaking new ground. Barnabas' strength was helping broken people. So given those different strengths, you can see why both of them refused to compromise. God cares for the world, but God also cares for his children. Paul refused to jeopardize God's big mission for the sake of one believer. Barnabas refused to jeopardize one believer for the sake of God's big mission. Both were right. Both are acceptable motivations. There's another reason why disagreement doesn't always indicate evil. Believers can hold conflicting perceptions of identical reality. That's just a different way of saying two believers can look at the same thing and see two different things. In fact, five believers can look at the same thing and see eight different things. Right? Why? 
because of our different ethnicities, our different economies, our different nationalities, our different cultures, our different personalities, our different life experiences, our different backgrounds. We don't always see the same things, and that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay, it's valuable. That's why we value diversity. Because in a diverse community of faith, we have the opportunity to see things as others see them, and that increases our understanding. And Paul and Barnabas looked at Mark's failure, and they saw two different things. Now, in this case, when no middle ground could have been reached, and I think you could think of some compromises that would have worked, the two leaders went in their separate directions. They still loved Jesus. They were still fully committed to the mission. They still loved one another. But let's be honest, this was not their finest moment. They didn't handle this very well. But that being said, even though they separated when they didn't need to, they didn't make a hot mess of the situation because they remembered something. Paul and Barnabas refused to allow their disagreement to foster division and drama for the church. They didn't ask the saints in Antioch to take sides. You ever known somebody that wants their drama to be your drama? Yeah, that's, that's a different sermon. Yeah. Stephanie says I need to preach that. Okay. I, I always do what Stephanie says. So, But you've experienced that people dragging you into their drama. Okay? And why? So that you'll agree with their opponent? Uh-uh. <laughs> so that you'll agree with them. They want you to say, oh, well, you're right. I can see why you're having trouble with her. I can see why he's such a problem. Okay? People want to drag you into their drama. There's the title, Stephanie, Dragged into the Drama. <laughs> but Paul and Barnabas didn't do that because they knew it would divide the church. And they had read their Old Testament, which is the only Bible they had at the time. The New Testament was still in production. And because they'd read the Old Testament, they were both familiar with Proverbs 6 that says there are seven things that God hates. He hates these things. And all of them show up in one form or another, some of them blatantly, some of them subtly, when we drag other people into our disagreements and when we try to win a dispute. Here are the seven. Pride. That's an easy one. It shows up in the need to be right, to have the final word, and to be the victor. The second one, a lying tongue. That shows up when we assume and broadcast things about our opponent that we don't know, when we impute motives to them, when we slant the facts in our favor, when we put the worst possible spin on their position and the best possible spin on ours and overlook evidence that weakens our position. 
See, I want to remind you a partial truth is a whole lie. So a lying tongue. Third, hands that shed innocent blood. Now you're probably thinking, I don't kill everybody I disagree with. So how does that one come into play? Well, there are a world of lost people out there that need authentic witnesses for Jesus. When we go on a crusade to defeat and destroy a brother or a sister, we ruin their witness before a watching world. And people who might otherwise have come to Jesus miss eternal life because of our silliness. And scripture equates the failure to tell the truth with the shedding of innocent blood. See, there's more at stake than you being right. The fourth is a heart that plots evil. Well, that shows up when we think of how we can make the other person look bad and how we can come out on top. The fifth, feet that pursue mischief, like when you run to your friends with gossip about the other person. Sixth is a false witness who breathes lies. Uh, we've already covered that one. And seventh is one who causes strife among brothers. Now that's pretty easy to connect the dots. Because we don't want to let people be neutral when we're in a squabble, do we? And, and here's something I've watched people do. I've watched this for years. You get in a squabble with another believer and you want to win people to your side. So you go to people who aren't involved and you dump on them and they don't say anything because they really don't want to get into a fight with you. But what you do is you interpret their silence as <laughs> approval. And then you go and say, well, I've talked to seven people and they all agree with me. No, all seven of them just didn't want to get into your dirty laundry. Okay? And, and that kicks you back into lying and misrepresenting the facts. Look, my first pastoring, I was the youth pastor under an old veteran pastor. And he had a lot of chutzpah. And one night in a board meeting, the church treasurer said, well, everybody's talking about this. And to my astonishment, the pastor said, Bill, let's be real. Everybody isn't talking about it. It's just you and your wife. <laughs> Woo! Boy, you could have heard a pin drop in that board meeting. But that's what we do, right? We tell people if they don't say anything, we put them in the ally. They're with me column. So to their credit, Barnabas and Paul rejected those seven things because disagreement and conflict may produce disappointing results, but they never justify sin. God will never say, in light of the mess you're in, here's a free pass to sin. So as Paul visited Asia Minor, he didn't go around dissing Barnabas or Mark. Barnabas didn't crisscross Cyprus, dissecting Paul's character. Oh, everybody thinks the apostle's so hot, let me tell you. 
And Mark didn't become a lifelong victim disparaging Paul as controlling and conspiring and cruel and a classic type A power-hungry egomaniac. Because all three of them understood there are bigger issues at stake than our petty pride. Their conflict notwithstanding, all three recognize that ministry is just God's truth coming through personality. So when I damage another believer's reputation, I effectively rob those that that believer might have helped. My pride may deprive somebody else of God's grace. And that's a big issue. Well, because Paul and Barnabas handled this situation well, even though not in exemplary fashion, everything and everyone eventually turned out just fine. Paul fulfilled his calling, taking the gospel to the Gentile world. And so did Barnabas. Two missionary teams allowed them to cover more ground and more regions than just one team. And while Mark didn't get to accompany Paul on that journey, Mark wrote the very first gospel account of Jesus' life, the gospel according to Mark. And I got to thinking about this the other day. Though he didn't get to accompany Paul on that journey, the gospel he wrote accompanied every ambassador for Christ who has ever taken a missionary journey over the several thousand years since he wrote it. That's sort of neat, isn't it? That's why I say God is borderline genius. <laughs> and years later, when Paul needed some help, he said, send Mark to me because he's very helpful. See, see they patch things up. So in light of that, let me request an additional takeaway. There's always some element of failure when we can't resolve a conflict. But when God's in the mix, failures aren't final. God doesn't need perfect people to accomplish his perfect plans. And he's able to bring positive endings out of our poorest moments. And that's why we should embark upon our ministry assignment, and every one of you has one, without fear of failure. Even if you make a hot mess, God's ability to fix messes exceeds your ability to make them. And he can take even your poorest moment and bring out something valuable. Let's pray together. Father, we've talked about biblical principles. But talking about biblical principles is meaningless unless we remember them and then apply them in the nitty-gritty of life. So Jesus, help us to remember these principles when we're nose-to-nose -nose with a brother or sister or family member in Christ, and we don't agree. Lord, help us to fight nicely with the Holy Spirit as the referee and with the Scripture as the rules for engagement. So that even if we can't come to a consensus, we can maintain God-honoring unity and maintain our witness and our credibility in a severely broken world. And Lord, 
the toughest thing for any of us to swallow is our pride. It always goes down sidewise and we choke on it. But help us to do that for the glory of Jesus. And we pray that in his great name. Amen. My final thought this weekend has to do with Mark. Why didn't God mention Mark's motivation for jumping ship? I think it's because if God had told us why he did that, we'd be tempted to say, well, that's something I don't have a problem with. And then we'd move on. But by leaving it as a mystery, I think God's saying, put yourself in the story. What would have made you jump ship? And when you ask those kinds of questions, God's Spirit can begin to teach you. The final thought in regards to Mark, I love the fact that he didn't make his pain his permanent address. Every week I meet people who have made some past pain their permanent address. Their future is behind them because all of their focus is on what somebody did back then and they've never let it go. You know, there are times I think God must lean over the balcony of heaven and say, dude, let it go. Will you let it go? You think about it every day. They don't even think about it. But here's the greater tragedy. As long as you keep thinking about what somebody did to you in the past, they control your future. They set your agenda. They determine your course. They've forgotten, and you're in a prison of your own making. Another thing, when you embrace pain, pain likes attention. You ever met, met, they met somebody? I can't wait to tell you about where they're hurting. Right? Now, we need to share our hurts with one another, but there's a difference between people seeking healing and people seeking applause. Pain wants attention. Pain seeks advocacy. And pain sometimes wants applause. But the problem is if you make pain your permanent address, you lose all hope of a better tomorrow. And you'll be left spending your life wrestling with some ghost from the past rather than wrestling with the exciting changes God has for your life. So learn from Mark. If somebody wounds you, don't make that pain your permanent address. God has better for you.